1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to start reading at verse 4 and read down to verse 13. 1 Samuel 16, verse 4, And Samuel did that which was the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably. Of course, understand the context here. Saul has been rejected, and uh, he's now become the enemy of Samuel, and so he's a little fearful to do this thing. Of course, you know, the Lord said, Go anoint among my, the sons of Jesse, a king. And so he's a little, little concerned about what Saul might do. But anyway, so that's why they say he's to come peaceably. The elders of town were concerned about it as well. And verse 5 says, And he peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. It came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, the Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And when he sent and brought him in, now he was ruddy, with all a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So tonight I'm looking at David and the conquest of greatness. David and the conquest of greatness. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege of ours to be assembled here together tonight. Thank you for health and wellness of your people and, and for faithfulness to... Uh, to assemble together. We praise the look into the Word of God tonight and consider David. Uh, help us to see him as he is, as a man, a great man, yet a man with faults and weaknesses. And Father, uh, we pray that you'd help us to learn some truths from his life that we could use to help us in our own walk with the Lord. And we pray you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> The test of a man's character is power or greatness. Somebody says, quote, greatness is the stature of a man's character in his own little world, unquote. Somebody said it is the strength of a woman's life in her own little sphere, unquote. Of course, God measures greatness differently than men do. You know, if God, if, if men were we're going to pick a king out of David's son, they'd have picked who? Eliab. I mean, he was, he was the oldest. Uh, he was the firstborn. You know, and, and really scripturally, if you think about it, and there's some scriptural aspects here too, particularly in the Old Testament, the firstborn was supposed to get a double portion of the inheritance. He was considered the spiritual head of the family after the death of his father, you know, all those things. But, but despite all that, God rejected Eliab. 
although he appeared to be the likely choice in the family of David. And, 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 again, and, and instead, he chose the littlest one, the youngest one, the one who was out keeping sheep, the one who wasn't even important enough to be invited to the ceremony. He was the eighth. You see, God looks at people from a different perspective than men do. God measures us by our faithfulness. Not by appearances, but by our faithfulness. By our faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, Required as stewards that a man be found faithful. Found faithful. And so as we consider David's greatness, his greatness, of course, begins with insignificance. Uh, you know, he's the, he's the shepherd boy. Uh, he's, he's, he's not of any, any seeming importance. Uh, you know, and, and of course, you know, the, but it is the Lord's choice. Uh, but what did God see in David? What was so special about David? Well, in Acts chapter 13 and verses 20, verse 22... You know, there's, there's a, something that's said about David that isn't said about of anybody else, really. In Acts 13, 22, it says, And when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised unto, up unto him them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Yeah, I don't believe that's really said about anybody else, those particular words. You know, there's, there's other things, praises or, or uh, um, good things said about men by God. You know, Job was considered upright when it feared God and, and skewed evil. He, that means he avoided it. He stayed out of the way, stayed away from it. Uh, he, had, he had, you know, that tells us he had respect of the power of the deceitfulness of sin because he skewed evil. He was, he was, he was aware of that. And, and so, but David is called a man after God's own heart. You know, pride will bring a person low. But David had a small beginning or an insignificant beginning. Uh, he's considered the least in his father's house. And, and you know, you know, sometimes we look at the world and we look at churches and oftentimes we say, well, they, they, I mean, they must be doing something right. They got a crowd. We measure things by appearances. But look at, I want you to look at a couple of verses here. In uh, uh, Matthew 5, 5, Matthew 5, 5. It says, "Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." Now, meek doesn't speak. A, speak. A, it's not. It's not a weakness, but it is a, of that spirit which will receive truth, which will submit to truth, but is strong to defend truth. And that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. Blessed are the meek. Look at chapter five and verse seventeen. Chapter five and verse seventeen. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass, heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, now he says here that, you know, there's going to be, you know, that whosoever shall teach or break one of these least commandments. Now, when Paul taught the Ephesian elders and spoke to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, you know, we know that according to the book of Acts, he spent three years at Ephesus training people at Ephesus and particularly training these elders or the pastors who would be the pastors and it became one of the one of the great churches of that era and that time and one of the things that he said to them in Acts 20, chapter 20 was I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God in other words he didn't divide up the Bible and say this is important and this is not he didn't divide it up and say, well, these are essential and these are the non-essentials. You know, these are the important commandments and these are the unimportant ones. He didn't do that. You know, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All. Now, you know, the, the, the new evangelicals will say, well, see, salvation is the most important thing and everything else evolves around that. That is not true. Salvation is a subject of the Word of God. The Word of God is what is the important thing, and everything else centers around the Word of God. Because the Bible not only teaches you how to have life, it teaches you how to live life. And if we teach men to break least commandments, God says you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be a lot of big-name preachers in heaven that aren't going to be big names anymore. Because there's things in the Bible they will not touch or preach. Because it would mean they'd probably lose some people. In fact, that's what, he, that's what really it means there when it, in verse 20 it said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. See, the, the scribes and Pharisees picked and chose what they wanted out of the law. And they, they pride themselves in keeping the letter of the law but, the, but, you know, and they tied mint and rue and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and Jesus said, but you have, awaited, you have omitted weightier matters, just judgment and mercy. They were unmerciful. They were cruel. He said, these you ought not to have, you ought, ought to have done. In other words, you ought to tithe of your mint and your rue and your cumin and all that. But you ought not leave these others undone. In other words, they were breaking the least commandments. See, the least. Again, God speak, God, greatness to him is being faithful, not being in somebody who's popular or well-to-do or well-liked, necessarily. You know, Luke 19, verse 17 says this, And he said to them, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. If you've been faithful in what God has given you, even if it's a very little, if you've been faithful in what God has given you, even if it's a very little, He's going to give you greater things in the kingdom. Because 
Luke 16.10 says this, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If a guy will steal a dollar from you, he'll steal 10,000 from you. But if he will not take a dollar from you unjustly, he, you can trust him with $10,000. See, greatness with God is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Of course, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So David's greatness began in smallness. But the second thing we see here is David was great as a champion of his people. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, of course, we know this story well, uh, the story of David and Goliath. And... Uh, you know, David, of course, was a shepherd, and he was out tending the sheep when, when uh, Samuel had his dad send for him. Uh, but as a, you know, as a shepherd, you know, a faithful shepherd has to be bold and brave. I mean, you've got to protect those sheep. The difference between a shepherd and a hireling is the hireling will run when his life is threatened. David didn't run. When he was in danger, or the sheep were in danger, he put himself between the predator and the sheep. He risked his own life, you see. And we see this here in 1 Samuel. He does this again in a greater way. But this, this he learned in small things. Again, it started out as a shepherd. He learned it as a shepherd. By the way, that's where Moses learned it. Moses learned to sacrifice himself, not in Egypt, in Pharaoh's house. He learned to sacrifice himself on the backside of the desert tending sheep. That's where he learned to sacrifice himself. That's where he learned to shepherd, protect his sheep. And here in 1 Samuel 17, verse 34, and it says, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. When he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Now, so, you know, of course, verse 37 says, David said, Moreover, the Lord hath delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. So David learned, you know, it wasn't just a matter of protecting the sheep, but trusting the Lord for his own protection by keeping the sheep. And, and so he, he became a champion of his people. He's not afraid to face the enemy of God's people. And, and we notice, I want you to notice something interesting in verse, verses 38 through 40. It says, And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put his, a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. David girded his sword upon his armor, and he said to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off from him. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a script, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistines. Another word of say there means was willing to try. 
Now this speaks well of David's spirit. David wasn't one of these guys that says, don't try to tell me how, I already know how to do it. He was open to other people's opinions. And Saul thought, being a military man, he thought the best thing for David to have would be a coat of mail to protect him and a sword. There's only one problem with it. Now, brother, Starling, if you were sent out into a battlefield with a weapon you've never used, would you want to go with it? No. David had never put on a coat of mail. He had never used a sword. What he used was a sling and a stone. So he was willing to try it. But he said, I cannot, because I haven't proved them. I haven't practiced with these. I've never used them to success. I've never even used them before. Now, can you imagine what to expect? If you're on a battlefield, and there's a giant over there, and you're on a battlefield, and everybody's armed with coats of mail and swords and spears, and you're going to take on this giant with a sling and a stone. Well, he didn't have just one stone. He had five stones. Do you know how many brothers Goliath had? Four. See, David wasn't just concerned about Goliath. He said, there's four more. But can you imagine the, the Philistine army looking at him, and even some, in the, I'm sure, in the Israelite army saying, What's he think he's going to do? I mean, he doesn't even have a weapon. He doesn't even have a sword. He doesn't even have a spear. He doesn't even have any protection. He doesn't have any armor. And he's the youngest. He's the insignificant. He's the shepherd boy. Do you ever people say to you, well, it's just a little church. You're just insignificant. You know, you need to, you need to, you need to branch out and, and accept the philosophies of other people and, and, and be more broad-minded and you'd be more popular and you'd be you know, more well-known and more well-accepted. You'd be greater in society, have a greater effect. I've had people say to me, you know, they want me to preach to certain places and I didn't go. And they say, well, just think of the opportunity you would have. But you can do one of two things. I've heard this from day one when I went in the ministry. You can either limit your fellowship or you'll limit your message. And I kind of decided right then and there I was not going to limit my message. So I'm sure he expected to be laughed at. After all, Saul had already told him in verse 33, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine. You can't, you can't go out there. You know, you know, David, you know, again, picture David coming in. Here's Saul all suited up in armor and, and a helmet and a sword and a spear. And he's all ready for battle. He looks like a great warrior. And, and David comes walking in. This little shepherd boy, 
with sandals and a sling and a few stones. In fact, he didn't even have the stones yet because he picked them out of the brook on the way over. And Saul you can't, you can't go against him. But see, David understood one thing. David understood the battle is the Lord's. He wasn't trusting in his weapons. His confidence was not in his weapons. His confidence was in the Lord. The Lord. So there's a third thing about David. He was a great, you know, and, and so sometimes we think, well, he, you know, these things don't go together. But he was a great poet and musician. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 23, we find him playing uh, before Saul. It says, It came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hands, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. Now, you might say he had a poet's heart. Uh, he was a man of great faith and a man of great experiences of life. And he wrote about those experiences. And the Psalms, of course, were, were the Old Testament hymnal of the Bible. Uh, many of them were, were sung by the children of Israel. And there are hymn books that actually today that, are, that, have, that have Psalms written to music. But I want to think of somebody, you know, he was a man that experienced mountaintop experiences and valley experiences of depths of despair. And he wrote about all of them. You know, in Psalms chapter 37, Psalm 37, I'm going to read several of these. Psalm 37, fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. You know, and we know that, you know, one of the things that we, we, we know from even from his life and reading about his life and and the things that he suffered and endured, the workers of iniquity many times prospered. They were the ones in power. You know, he had to run for his life. And, and so he says, fret not thyself because of evildoers. He knew what evildoers were. He suffered at the hands of evildoers. And don't be envious against the workers of iniquity. They shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as a green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily shalt thou be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires in thine heart. Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Thine arrows stick fast in me, and my hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger. And this, is a, this was a psalm that we believe he wrote after he sinned with Bathsheba. And he's talking about uh, the, how uh, his being under conviction. There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is any rest in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are going over my head as in heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. And it goes on. You know, Psalm 23, or 22 and 23. You know, we, we, we often read Psalm 22 and we think only of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sufferings on the cross. But David wrote it about his experiences. And he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, there were times in life where he thought God forsook him. You ever feel that way? Just feel all left alone in the world? 
if you haven't, at some point in your life you will. Job felt that way. He said he cried out, looked to the left, took to the right, forward and back, and he said, you know, I cannot find him. But, he said, I know that he knoweth the way that I take. You know, David said, I cry in the daytime, verse 2, but thou hearest not. In the night season, and I'm not silent, but thou art holy. Thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Verse 22, verse 21, Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. Of course, the lion's mouth, I think it referred to the enemy, the old enemy, the, 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 the devil, as a roaring lion, seeketh whom may devour. And then he wrote Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Psalm 55, again verses 1 through 8. Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make a noise. You know, some people say, well, you ought not to complain against God. Well, if you're thinking it, you might as well tell him. He already knows it anyway. You know, one of the things God delights in us, for us to be, is honest. Yeah, I've told my kids before, you can say anything to me as long as you say it respectfully. You know, of course, they've never complained or anything. Uh, But he said, I I mourn my complaint and make a noise because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is sore pain within me, and the terrors of death fall upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. And I said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I might fly away and be at rest. Lo, then would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Selah. You know, sometimes you feel like just driving off somewhere. That's human nature. You know, David was hunted like an animal. But one of the things we find about David is he never sought retaliation. Saul hunted him like an animal. Ben Franklin said this, quote, Doing an injury puts you below your enemy. Revenging one makes you but even with him. Forgiving him sets you above him, unquote. You know, David never retaliated against Saul. In fact, after Saul was killed and Jonathan, and of course even Saul's own son tried to, you know, take the throne. Of course, a lot of Abner had a lot to do with that. And there was a civil war. 
But even after all that, David sought out somebody from the house of Jonathan that he might show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. But he also took and gave proper burial to the bones of Saul and Jonathan. It gave testimony to their greatness. You see, despite all these things that we go through in life, he says, fret not. Don't let it eat away at you or gnaw or wear you away or rub you, chafe or agitate you or disturb you. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Great poet and musician. But I want to this fourth thing. David was a great king. Now, again, he was the eighth child. Uh, there were seven brothers older than he. Seven speaks of the day of, of not the day. Seven speaks of a completion, like a week. The eighth day speaks of a new week. And this was a new era for Israel. This was a new dynasty. This was a new family of which there would be no end. When God made a promise to David concerning his house in 2 Samuel 7, uh, he, he promised that he would have a son to sit on his throne forever. Of course, we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who one day ruled. But that promise was given to David. And so, and, 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 and in spite of that, and, and besides that, he had 40 years of ruling and reigning, and, and, and you know, took, took Israel to the heights it had never reached before. Solomon probably took it to its greatest heights. And of course, but we also understand that David had his weak moments. In spite of his greatness, he has weak moments. He, he owned, he felt his weakness. David, I want you to understand this, David felt his own weakness and this was his Greatness. In other words, he understood that he was weak without God. And that's why it was great. You know, it's interesting when you read about David's many battles, this is what you often read. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. You know, Saul would just blow a trumpet and gather the troops, and they went to battle. The word inquire means to consult. First Samuel 23, 2. Therefore David inquired the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and smite these Philistines? You know, he wasn't even king yet. But they raided the threshing floors, I think at Keilah. And so he said, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up? Go and smite these Philistines. And the Lord said to David, go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. And so he did. And then it was told him that Saul was coming down. And so again, David inquired of the Lord, verse 4. The Lord yet again, the Lord answered him and said, Rise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines under thy hand. And of course, later he inquires of the Lord again and said, Will Saul come? He said, Will. He will. And then he inquires again and says, Will the people of Keilah give me up? And he said, They will. See, what you find David doing consistently is inquiring of the Lord. Now, this didn't stop when he became king. 
In fact, when Saul, uh, well, 1 Samuel 30, verse 8, I think this was when the time that that, uh, they burned Ziklag, the Amalekites burned Ziklag. 1 Samuel 30, verse 8 says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them without fail to recover all. But in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, after he heard about the defeat of Saul and the death of Saul and Jonathan, it says, It came to pass after this that David inquired the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into the any suitors of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So he asked specific questions. He inquired the Lord as to what he should do. Just because Saul was dead didn't mean, well, I just go. Second Samuel 5, 19. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them in mine hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines in my hand. Now in verse 23, they come again in the land. And he says, and when David inquired the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. Of course, you know, the first time he asked, he said, just simply go up and I'll give them into your hand. So he went up face to face. The next time he asked God, God said, don't go up that way. Go around behind In 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Now, then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And what did David do? He inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because they slew. He slew the Gibeonites. Remember the Gibeonites were the people of Israel that came to Joshua and said they came from a far country and they said, make a league with us. And they brought moldy bread and worn out shoes and ragged clothes and, and Joshua made a league with them. Children of Israel made a league with them, promised not to destroy them. Well, Saul sought to destroy them, breaking that promise. And God wasn't pleased with it. And here's what it says about Saul. 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. So Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord. Therefore he slew him, and turned the kingdom unto David the son of Jesse. See, the difference between Saul and David was, David said, I need God. I'm weak without God. I recognize my weakness. And I'm relying on the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to inquire of Him. I'm going to consult with the Lord. Saul thought he was anointed king. He could just take care of things. So David recognized it. You know, even in the building of the temple, even the building of the temple was something that David desired. But we notice in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David expresses uh, the idea of building the temple, it's interesting to me that he expresses it to the man of God, the prophet of God, Nathan. 2 Samuel 7, 
It says, and it came to pass when the king sat in this house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. So he's conquered the areas around him. Everything's peaceful now. The king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of Seir, but the ark of God dwelleth in curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now, this is an instance where the prophet spoke a little presumptuous. But it says, It came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, You know, I'm sure David would have said, Great, this is something I really want to do. I want to, make a, I want to build a temple for God, for the place of God to dwell in. And the Lord comes to Nathan that night, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, have made thee a great name, like unto the name of great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in the place of their own, move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee, thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice the next words. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now there's two things here. Number one, God says through Nathan the prophet, David, I don't want you building my house. Now, that'd be like, you're all puffed up, you're wanting to do this great thing, and somebody popping your balloon. I mean, what's the temple often referred to as? The Old Testament. The temple of Solomon. I'm sure David would have liked to have had the temple of David. You know, his name associated with it. You know, he could have said, I want to build it. I want the credit. I want the recognition. We didn't say that. David was fine with it. He just simply accepted it as the word of the Lord. And of course, God gave him something far greater, really. He said, your son's going to sit in your throne and he's going to build my house. But of your son, his kingdom will be forever. Of course, that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. It was a reference to the, to the fact that David's sons would always sit on the throne of Israel. It wouldn't be cut off like Saul's house was. And we know there were some wicked ones, but God made a promise. And he will, although there's no king in Israel to this day, but there will be yet 
a king of the lineage of David sitting on the throne of Israel. That will be the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes to set up his kingdom. So he was not jealous of the exaltation, the recognition, the praise of others, which would be Solomon. In fact, he prepared materials for it. Prepared materials for it. He could have said, well, if I don't get to build it, I ain't doing anything for it. You know, Moses, this is, this is so much like Moses in one aspect. You know, Moses prepared, even though he didn't get to go into the promised land, Moses prepared Joshua to lead the people in, and Moses also prepared the people to follow Joshua in. In spite of the fact that he wasn't going to get to go in himself. See, this shows that he realized his own weaknesses. Of course, you know, it doesn't really give us here the reason in this chapter, I don't believe, why David was chosen to build it, but we know later it was because he was a man of war and shed much blood. And not all the blood that David shed was justly. There were some things he did when he was out of the will of God that were not, were not really just. And so, but Solomon was a man of peace. The second thing one noticed about David's greatness in his realizing or accepting his weakness is David never shared the blame for his sin. You know, his sin was personal and his confessions were personal. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon, what's the next word? Me. O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto thy testimonies, uh, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before thee. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. You know, what you see here is personal, personal me, my, mine, I. What about Bathsheba? You know, Bathsheba should have said the same thing to the Lord. For any part, she may have had it. You know, I don't know. You know, there's difference of opinion whether whether it was the right thing for Bathsheba. It was in a right place and all that. We do know David wasn't supposed to be on a rooftop. David was supposed to be out fighting battles at that time. He was not where he was supposed to be. But David doesn't blame anyone else. He blames himself. He takes personal responsibility. And we see this throughout the scriptures of, with, with David. Uh, for example, in First Chronicles 21, First Chronicles 21, and verse 8, First Chronicles 21, verse 8, David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. This is where he numbered the people. I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And in verse 17, Again, he says, David said unto God, 
Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. And then in 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel 22, 22. David said unto Abathur, I knew it that day when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Now David, David really, you know, I'm not, I, I don't think you really could pin this rightfully on David. David, David didn't know that Doeg was there. But when he was there, when he saw him, he knew that he was Saul's servant. Of course, an Edomite, Edomites are descendants of Esau, and they hated the descendants of Jacob. So Doag gladly killed the priests. But, but David, then, takes responsibility. You're too often, we're like Adam. Oh, Lord, the woman thou gavest me, she gave me and I did eat. You know, there are some in independent Baptist circles, if there is infidelity in a marriage, you know who gets the blame immediately? The wife. I can assure you one thing, that isn't going to fly at the judgment seat of Christ. That isn't going to fly. There's no excuse. You know, David, David's sin was personal to him, and his confessions were personal he took the judgment for his sin upon himself. He did not make excuses. He did not blame others. And that's why he was a great man. One of the reasons. You see, he recognized his weaknesses. Therefore, he relied on the Lord. His faith was in God. In the Lord, who would strengthen his hands and make his fingers to fight. His, his strength, his, he didn't rely on himself. Because he knew he was just a man. So he understood that. And that was the secret to David's greatness. You know, David failed when he relied on himself. He conquered when he remembered the Lord. You know, his conquest of life was not because he had some great celestial or, uh, you know, multi-talented gifts. He's just a shepherd boy. The least in the family. You know, his brothers evidently were more, appeared more fit for the job than he did. But see, it was his faith. His faith that made him a great man in the eyes of God and, over, and helped him to overcome the potential of exalting him himself. 
So, lest you feel great, lest you feel great, consider the life of David. The reason he was a man after God's own heart was he relied on the Lord. He wasn't without fault. But even in his sin, he justified God and not himself. He justified God and didn't try to blame others. He accepted the consequences for his sin. Might Lord help us to be that kind of person. Let's pray.